Hi, I'm Adam Miller. And I'm Sarah Sweet. And welcome to Food on the Radio. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? Good morning, Adam. How are you? Well, I'm pretty good. And here we are at Food on the Radio in Adam's Kitchen in Wellfleet. On Cape Cod. On Cape Cod. <laughs> That's right. It's a really blustery, not summer-like day. Yeah, we had we had two days of super summer and then back to chilly, blustery. Yes. So, what do we want to talk about today? Food. Okay. <laughs> um, I can tell you about some recent travel food that I have eaten. <laughs> Um, because, as you know, we just went to California for the sounds terrible, but we just we went for the weekend. <laughs> wow, that's a zippity quick jet setter kind of thing to do. Yeah, we did. We just had to kind of get out of town. So we went to visit my father and we went to one of our favorite spots out in Marshall, California, which is north of San Francisco, Petaluma, and it's called Hog island oyster and i know there's a hog island here that is that's right the brewery but this is um an oyster farm and they they have a really great menu and you can sit outside at these like homemade wooden plank tables and get barbecued oysters with this bourbon butter sauce and raw oysters and we just kind of ordered tons of snacks and it was really great we first went there 10 years ago but i wanted to tell you really about Amy's Kitchen. You mean the frozen food Amy? Yeah. Right. Like, I'm sure people are familiar. The name's kind of written in like an 80s cursive. Right. <laughs> they make great vegetarian. Right. Organic stuff, vegetarian. And and I've even had like a dairy-free pizza. Frozen yes. pizza. Yep. So I had no idea it was an actual restaurant from California. <laughs> no, that's, that's news. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so they have a presence in the... Harvey Milk Terminal at SFO, there's a restaurant. It's like basically a vegetarian, vegan Shake Shack, sort of. And you get like a veggie burger, fries, and we got a dairy-free shake. Because we were just, it was an emotional kind of trip. And so by the time we were going home, we're like, we just want burgers, but we don't eat those anymore. What can we do? And we're like, Amy's. It was so delicious. Wow. We, when we, and the packaging is great, and it's like all compostable and stuff. But the burger itself, look, when we looked at it, it was like a pretty thin, maybe like the old-timey vegetarian burgers you're right, used to seeing. Right. Um, kind of like a disc. Disc, yes. <laughs> yeah, we were like, oh, I don't know. But all the lettuce and the tomatoes, like everything was super fresh. And actually the, the taste, like it wasn't dry. It was a delicious patty. And the french fries were like fantastic but i cannot stop thinking about this chocolate non-dairy milkshake because i i do love a milkshake but i can't i cannot drink that much dairy like right, i would instantly right. have to go to urgent care <laughs> <laughs> i miss ice cream i miss this stuff and so i was even still a little worried because the the texture of it and the flavor like it it felt like i was drinking a real milkshake and i was like oh no this is going to be bad. But I had no stomachache. It was so delicious. It tasted definitely like it had that underlying coconut. Right. was probably right, the main right, right. Um, ingredient there. But it was just delicious. Well, there are two things about that and from a local point of view. In Truro, uh, at Sweet and Savory, they have a chocolate gelato that I could die for. <laughs> 
um, and so that's one thing. And last summer, I don't know if they were so, if it was a supply problem or something, but I would go in every time and it was always out. They never had any non-dairy stuff. I don't know what their deal was. So I'm hoping this year, now that everything's opening up, mm. uh, that, uh, that I can get that again. The other thing, when you were talking about oysters in California, when I lived on the West Coast, one of the things that I remember was that there was a wide variety of oysters, in general, a wider variety of oysters than you have on the East Coast. Uh, and my favorite oyster that isn't grown on this side, you know, isn't um, part of the uh, aquaculture, is a Kumamoto. That's my favorite oyster. <laughs> if ever you get out to the West Coast, get a Kumamoto. They're small, but they're in this deep shell, and they're just delicious. You can have, I mean, they're here in restaurants. But I, yeah, but I, yeah, sure, but they're not cultivated here because right. one of the things that I realized a while ago is that you actually have to, there is some control over what breeds or species mm-hmm. of of shellfish can be bred in certain regions in order to not be invasive right. uh, and to not sort of mess up what hopefully is a reasonably sustainable aquaculture. Yeah, I, I haven't been cooking that much stuff because as the weather gets warmer, I kind of you know just say I'm going to grill this. But it was nice to finally get um, a nice fresh piece of tuna to, and and the way I usually make it now is I make like a a marinade different types of things marinate for different lengths of time right and f- fish is the thing you marinate the shortest time because if you're marinating with anything acidic the right. acid is going to cook, cook the it. fish mm-hmm. um, and so that's why you can't make ceviche a week ahead of time <laughs> Because it'll just be this bleh by, by the time you get to it. So I make I make something that's sort of a, a little bit of soy sauce, sesame oil, uh, sake. Yeah, I think, um, is that the recipe when you made dinner for me last year? Yeah, and then I get some uh, either black or regular sesame seeds. Mm-hmm. And, I, and really 10 minutes, you don't want to do it from it because otherwise it just starts seeping through the skin. Uh, so, so in terms of what I made last week, it was just nice to grill some tuna and i have this thing about not wanting to eat asparagus unless they're in season it's not like i'm a big snob and there aren't things that i don't eat out of season but asparagus is definitely something that i tend to wait until they're in season i really think there's a difference of between course. between asparagus that come from peru or something and asparagus that are really fresh in spring from the northeast so this is a great time of year for asparagus and asparagus in our area is like most active from May 1st through May 30th. It's still pretty good now. It's still yeah. just two days in. Yeah, it's yeah, still pretty yeah. good. I was just reading Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. It's a nonfiction book she wrote, I think, in 2006 about her year. She wrote it with her husband and one of her daughters about the year she spent just only eating what was grown within in her area on their farm in Virginia and what they grew themselves. Right. And there's a big section about asparagus and how eating it during like the you, sh- you shouldn't be having asparagus all the time anywhere in the country, whatever you want in the middle of winter. Like, it- it's really just best when it's in its season. And she was talking about this um, asparagus festival 
Like in Europe, like right. there's asparagus festivals. They get very enthusiastic about asparagus time. Yeah. I, I remember that myself. And I know <laughs> this will sound really pretentious, but when I was one time in the Loire Valley, I know just <laughs> saying, wah, the, wah. saying, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I was visiting, and it was early, or you know, uh, very early summer, late spring. Mm-hmm. And there was the White Asparagus Festival or time. Oh, and yeah. It just, has a crazy name, right? We've talked about Yeah, and just piles of white asparagus. <laughs> I, and, 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 you know, they make them all different ways, lots of times with a lot of butter and a lot of cheese and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I didn't find that they were that. that the, the, to me, the difference between a good and a bad asparagus is freshness more than type of asparagus. This is called... Spargelzeit, and it's asparagus season, and I guess Germans mm-hmm. go crazy for this white asparagus. Yeah, they're fairly fat white asparagus. Yeah, and um, they're Spargelfest. good. Spargelfest. I've been lazy, but it is kind of wasteful. I realize to just sort of you know cut like the last inch. No, you really gotta like if you peel just it. get a peeler. Mm-hmm. That really is the best way. And then, and I even like them like for instance salads. I'll just blanch it, you know, like two three minutes in boiling water, and then dump it in ice water, and then it's. Um, and they're just great, like, almost anyway. This time of year, it's those kinds of things to celebrate as opposed to complicated recipes. I'll tell you what I made this week, which was really last week, but who cares. I was commissioned to make a cake in celebration of someone completing their MBA, and they wanted it to be a carrot cake, but without any nuts, right? Which, And this is like a big, there's a big divide, people who want walnuts in a carrot cake or no or people who want raisins in a carrot cake i'm a no. neither you only want carrot in the carrot cake yeah are I you just a want pineapple a in the carrot cake oh gosh no oh good pineapple okay. that's like pineapple on pizza Ooh. i'm a raisins and walnuts in a oh, carrot cake that's person. too much stuff in for me no that's it's like delicious you're dump wrong. truck cake you're wrong <laughs> um but in any case i mean so the carrot cakes whether they have the raisins or walnuts in them or not are very moist cakes because there is so much oil and the carrots have so much moisture and so you don't really need to soak these kind of cakes unless you bake them a little too long which i did i like to think i invented this although i'm sure someone else has done this along the way but um staff had recently made a rhubarb simple syrup because he's been making lots of syrups so he can make sodas with them and simple syrup is at its most basic level, is water and sugar, right? Exactly. Just heat it down till it's dissolved to a syrup. Right. Syrup. And if you want it wicked syrupy, you do the ratios one to one. A cup uh-huh. of water, a cup of sugar. If you want it a little, that'll produce a very viscous syrup. Uh-huh. But if you want it a little thinner, which is probably better for cake soaking. So if you wanted the thinner syrup, you would just add a little more water. And so- then for the, for the infusing it, like when you're making this, you can... Use the pulps of any citrus. We used rhubarb in this case. So when you use the rhubarb, did you cook the rhubarb before you infused it into the syrup? No, it goes into the syrup as you boil it. Because ah, okay. to become a true simple syrup, it has to boil for one minute. Okay. Um, so you put whatever you're... Sometimes you can use the rind of a citrus or you can use the pulp or rhubarb or blueberry, like whatever you want it to taste like ginger. Um, so it's in there and then you just let it cool with whatever you're using in there. Um, so we had this rhubarb simple syrup because I had seen some rhubarb in the store and I got it for him for his sodas. But then I was faced with this sort of a little bit dry carrot cake. So I 
took the rhubarb simple syrup and I added cinnamon to it. Before I did that, you couldn't really taste the rhubarb by itself, but the cinnamon somehow like unlocked the flavor. That's really interesting. It was crazy. It was so delicious. So I soaked the cake with this rhubarb cinnamon simple syrup because that goes with all the flavors in the cake. And then I had to decorate the cake with Baby Yoda, the client of the cake loves baby yoda and i i did a pretty good job we can share a picture <laughs> online but it's um the eyes weren't quite right but the spirit was there <laughs> but i did use a regular cream cheese frosting to frost the cake and make the in-between cake layer but then i made this other strange frosting that was not cream cheese it's just butter and cream and confectioner sugar to do the piping work mm-hmm. and to make the mm-hmm. baby yoda some call him grogu but i think that name is foolish baby yoda is much better than grogu 100 percent, or as we say in our house baby yo <laughs> You were talking about the King Silver book earlier, and you know uh, I've been going to Cambridge a lot for work reasons. Mm-hmm. And Harvard Bookstore has both sort of like a used old books, and then mm-hmm. it has new books. And in its used old books, I found totally by accident this really funny book called Ralph Ayers Cookery Book. Now I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about who Ralph Ayers was. It's got a beautiful cover. We'll share a picture. Ralph Rodolfos Ayers was the head cook at the New College Oxford in the early 18th century. My goodness. And he wrote down all of these recipes. And they're a little hard like to read. Like with a quill pen? I guess so. And you can see, um, I'm showing Sarah now, you can see the picture of the sort of parchment, the 18th century handwriting parchment recipe. But anyway, they're really fun. Very few of these are recipes you would either want to cook or be able to cook. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of them. Fantastic. I, I mean, what a I think, great book. I, I, but I think a lot of them were, you know, they were cooked when you when you actually did have a big pot that was like a cauldron yeah like in a hanging over a fire a fire in a fire a big fireplace um and there were only like nine ingredients worldwide yeah (laughs) but also um our ideas of sweet and savory and dessert spices and i was thinking about when you were mentioning the cinnamon Mm -hmm. that in 15 14 when you see 14th 15th 16th into 18th century 19th century when you see recipes there's a lot of things like nutmeg and clove raisins dates that are used in savory sort of you know the idea of dessert didn't really is Mm. a somewhat modern concept but (laughs) so anyway i'm going to read you one of the uh recipes all right what's this a recipe for it's for how to make oxford sausages oh oh yeah i know they sound great right and 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 (laughs) it's like they're made of shoes oxford's right (laughs) right it says take a take a pork and veal in equal quantity, and let it be free from sinews and skin, and chop it very small. <laughs> then add to it half as much good beef suet as meat, and chop it together till the suet is fine. Then season it with pepper, salt, nutmeg, some sage, and thyme. Mince small, then work it up with two or three eggs and a little water as you see good. <laughs> work it up as you see good. That's the end of the recipe. But then what? <laughs> it doesn't, like, doesn't it. say like... I guess he knows form, how long to cook it or whether to boil it or... Uh... Or form into sausage shape. <laughs> anyway, it's a lot of fun. And then, you know, every lately I've, I've been very into this whole historical cooking thing. And the, the other th- thing that I found is a, a historical novel called Miss Eliza's English... 
Kitchen, a novel of Victorian cookery and friendship. Oh, I love friendship. And it's by Annabelle Abs, and it's sort of each chapter has a recipe or dish listed, but then it's a story of these people in these lives. So again, that's Annabelle Abs, Miss Eliza's English Kitchen, which is a segue in a way um, to supporting your local libraries and books. And what I, I, a while ago, I had forgotten to mention this when I was talking about cookbooks at the Wellfleet Library. I don't think it's just Wellfleet. I think East Ham has it as well, which is a seed library. And you can go to the Wellfleet Library and you can take out seeds. Obviously, you don't need to return them. Well, right. I mean, you're not like just going to have coffee with them and bring them back. <laughs> right. You can go and get seeds and, and you can grow plants with them. What kind of plants? Um, um, I think they have vegetables and that sort of thing, herbs and a variety of things. And one of the great things about libraries today is... They are resources for all kinds of things, whether it's uh, media to watch or listen to, mm-hmm. uh, community centers. And again, the, I, they also have a library of things, which includes even kitchen things. Oh, wow. Um, and you can take out things you like that. You can like check out a Cuisinart? You can. That's I don't so know, cool. I don't know specifically a Cuisinart, but there Got are it. things. But they're really developing this idea of creating resources that help, in a way, it provides equity for access to all kinds of things that, that can be useful to any any person. Um, so check out the Seed Library at the Wellfleet Library. You're listening to Food on the Radio on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. The voice, the spirit of Cape Cod. You can also find us at WOMR.org. It's been a while since we've talked about like TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah. So I stumbled upon, if you can call it stumbling when, you're, when your fingers are touching a remote control. You can. Um, there's a show on, and I think I saw it on Create. Oh, which is mm-hmm. sort of an offshoot. It's like all teaching shows of, okay. from from PBS. Got it. And it's it's one of the most fun cooking shows. It's it's the um, new Scandinavian cooking. Do you know that show? <laughs> no, I don't. It is so much fun. Why? He's this. He is this very charming, sort of goofy Scandinavian guy, <laughs> and he goes to all of these weird outskirts places in Norway and Denmark and Sweden and. And he cooks on site, so he always has like a little burner, okay, uh, either a little gas burner. So he's or like something. a nomad chef, and it, it, sort of. And he, and he cooks, he cooks all kinds of Scandinavian delicacies, but mostly things that are directly related to whatever is locally grown at wherever the site that he goes to. Okay, like and what he, is a Scandinavian delicacy? Um, well, <laughs> funny you should ask, because like all I can think of is furniture. <laughs> well. Uh, some of the recipes are snow crab compote with potatoes. No thanks. Fish cakes with a quick remoulade and rye bread. That's okay. Broiled Norway lobster with shallots, lettuce, potatoes, and dressing. All raw, right. Raw Greenland prawns with horseradish whip. So the, the website is News Can Cook. News? News. So it's New Scandinavian oh. Cooking, but it's it looks like News Can Cook. Got it. Um, it's a great show, but their website is really fun. He's really charming. And one of the things that he talked about was, uh, you know, making making sort of like fish cakes and sausages and things like that out of seafood. Okay. And along with that, 
I found there's like a, a seafood sausage. Yes, well, and I and I'll tell you if you're interested. I am. I found this place called Kavaroy. That's K V A R O Y. I'm sure it's pronounced completely differently in whichever Scandinavian language it, it belongs to, and they make salmon hot dogs that you can order. I feel like we've talked about this, a salmon hot dog. Maybe I just dreamt of it. We may have, but uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to order some. They have jalapeno and cheese. Uh, they have original recipe. Wait, you're ordering salmon hot dogs online? I am going to. I'm going to do it, and I will report on it the next time we meet. Uh, I would like to report on it by eating some myself. Okay, so we will try some <laughs> salmon hot dogs. So check out News Can Cook. It's a lot fun. If you if you see it on the listing on television, it's great. But he has videos of him making things. Uh, the 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 chef's name is Klaus Meyer. Sometimes you look at it and go, "Well, I'm not going to eat that." <laughs> that uh, and other times, you, you, it opens your eyes to a totally different ingredients and ways of doing things. So <laughs> give it a try. Other times, you buy salmon hot dogs through the mail. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, this sounds dubious. Just as I was talking about having local fresh asparagus, not right. having them from Peru, I want to get Norwegian uh, hot dogs sh- shipped from across the North Atlantic. So, um, uh, <laughs> sorry, carbon footprint. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty awful. Well, actually. This this goes back to the Barbara Kingsolver book, which was the reason they began the project that became the book, which was living, you know, she had moved back to this farm in Virginia with her husband and her daughters, and they decided we're just going to eat food from that we grow or we get from people right around us is because of the, I mean, and this book is almost 20 years old now anyway, right? But even then, the amount of like fossil fuels and stuff that it takes to transport food from everywhere to other places now this is stupid because i can't remember the exact number but in her research she was basically like if every family could for one meal a week just eat stuff from their own area it would like cut a lot of barrels of oil off of our tab as a nation and yeah it's an incredible it's incredible to think like not just the gas in the trucks but the power it takes to like refrigerate everything and the amount of water it takes yeah. to make something you you don't eat meat but i do in terms of sustainability to a certain extent what what people have 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 suggested is the idea that if people just ate say 40 percent less red meat mm. you could create a an industry to produce meat that was sustainable if the proportions of how much people ate it and how often they ate it just changed a little bit. Right. Um, that it's that that it isn't the sense of I need to be a tree hugging, you know, hardcore vegan in order to protect the environment. You can just be a little more conscious of how far away something you eat, you know, has has traveled. If you're listening to Food on the Radio and you have some ideas for recipes or food topics of any type, please drop us a line at our email at foodontheradio at gmail.com. Also, you can find pictures, recipes, and other stuff on our Instagram account, which is Food on the Radio, or on Facebook, once again, at Food on the Radio on Facebook. We love hearing from our listeners. Once in a while, I download Bon Appetit magazine Ooh la la. and and but it was interesting because we were talking about sustainability mm-hmm. and in the may this year's may bon appetit magazine they have a guide to water use and food and it's both dispiriting <laughs> well not for, 
you mean not for like what we would use to like in cooking, but like what it takes to grow or produce things. Right. So it was a guide. It was a guide to basically water sustainability, the kinds of foods and the and what it takes to make something, how much water it takes to make something. And I think again, maybe last year we did talk about the whole issue of almonds use an enormous amount of water. They do. And you and you both you and I often cook dairy free. Mm -hmm. And I think at the beginning of our dairy free lives. The first thing and easiest thing to find was almond milk, um, soy milk, soy milk obviously, also which uses a, a great deal of water. Isn't what soy it, less? Isn't it the least amount of water usage? Well, it's yes. So soy milk is the least. It takes seven gallons of water per quart of soy milk. Wow. Um, but just so people know, and then you make your own choices. <laughs> um, dairy milk takes a hundred and fifty-seven gallons per quart. Wow. To produce the milk that you get, you know, you buy at the at the counter. Almond milk, 93 gallons per quart. And the good news is, over the years, I've actually switched because I think it actually mixes and tastes better when mixed with coffee and that sort of thing, is oat milk. Mm-hmm. I was happy to see that oat milk, it takes 12 gallons per quart. Um, and and the, at least, again, once again... It's that sense of it, you don't necessarily have to be intensely dogmatic to at least make decisions that are more more beneficial than others. Is there coconut milk? Do they have a? It does not list coconut milk in this mm. in this particular list, but it also includes how much water it takes, say, to produce, say, an olive as opposed to asparagus and that sort of thing. So I highly say if you want to just have a general guide, and again, you can just say, oh, I'm, I could, you could do this and not really sacrifice anything from a culinary taste point of view uh-huh. by just saying, oh, I'll just pick this one instead of that one, and at least I've cut in half the amount of water it took to, to make this right. meal. Um, so anyway, it was, a great art- it was a great article. I highly recommend it. Um, again, it's, uh, it's a nice little chart. And you can either get it online or Bon Appetit still makes a paper magazine. They sure do. Oh, Blue. no, we're drinking coffee right now. Look how much water it takes to make coffee. Yes, it takes a lot of water Plus, to then you got to use more water to make the actual and, coffee. And yes, you do. <laughs> so as we said, you know, I, I'm one of the... Uh, there are people I know. I, I, re- I remember when I was in Japan <laughs> that it was very interesting because, because when you went to Starbucks in Japan... Mm-hmm. The largest cup of coffee you could possibly buy in Japan was maybe 16 ounces. And I remember looking at somebody who, an American who was living there, who had their own mug to pour coffee, and it had to be 32, it had to be like (laughs) 7,000 times. Yeah, like a quart, like a quart's worth of of coffee. (laughs) Lots of coffee. when you look at the sizes, the last time I was in, I think, uh, like uh, Cumberland Farms. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I had no idea that you even sold portions of soft drinks. Like pony kegs of Diet Coke. <laughs> yeah, that, that you would need to carry on your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, they, it comes with like the baby Bjorn attachment yes. for your beverage. <laughs> to drink that much of anything. It was shocking to me. Uh, anyway... I, I'm amazed sometimes at how much coffee people drink during the day. But that's okay. Everybody has their thing, you know. I do rely heavily on coffee, but not for energy or to be alert. I just, 
love the taste of it. You know, we drink decaf most of the time. I think now we're drinking real coffee, so we're going to have a problem soon. But the, the final thing in terms of like things that you can find out there to read and stuff is it's really interesting. And I actually think Bon Appetit has changed. My memory of Bon Appetit magazine, what it was kind of the frou-frou magazine. Is a little that correct? stodgy. Yeah. yeah, a little stodgy. A little... It seems very modern now I sort think of they've, cool I think they've changed a lot I think they've really changed their approach and because in the same issue they had a thing called uh, they had a, an article about pasta and it was just a guide to what is the differences in, pa- in pasta what it was um, like the what, difference of like flowers or like how that's made right what what is semolina flour what is bronze dye what is slow dry what is bronze dye bronze dye tell us uh, most dried pasta is extruded which is also one of my favorite words. Oh, it's like when the Play-Doh thing. Yes, that's what that yes. Means, right? um, I, I, it, I feel like the word sounds like what it does. Extruder. Yes. Um, means the dough has been forced through little metal plates that produce different strands and shapes. Traditional bronze dyes produce pasta with desirably rough exterior that holds sauce better than the smooth surfaces created by the aluminum or Teflon dyes. Oh, so uh, they're meaning dye in terms of like... A die, the die has been cast. The die cast, yes. So not right. like... The metal die. A D-Y-E. It's not colored. Okay. It's not colored by It's like bronze die yes. pasta, no thanks. Yes, that's correct. So or, that's what it yes, means. yes, please. Yes, so it, yeah, it means the metal, the metal that it's extruded through. Right. So anyway, so when you see bronze die, now you, I, I never knew what that meant. And so now I know, oh, that means it'll be a rougher texture, which is better for... And it'll for, hold the sauce more. There you go. Oh, there you go. more sauce means yes. So the other thing in Bon Appetit magazine that it has is that to calm people down and make and to me it's a self assurance because I just don't make my own pasta. It just seems like too much work. And there's all these really good professional people out there making fresh pastas and selling it in local stores. True. And also dried pasta is good. Um, there's a lot of good dry pastas. The main thing that I always say is should never have a lot of ingredients. <laughs> right. And pasta is one of the things that did not go crazy with these grocery prices. Correct. They've stayed, dried pasta has stayed sort of friendly in that way. So it's, it's still a cheap thing to eat. We appreciate it. Yes. You know, I'm spoiled because I live with the master of making fresh pasta and bread. Like he... He may, he'll just be like, oh, I made fresh pasta today. No big deal. Yeah. But you don't like it because you do have to like take the machines too out. Too much work. Yeah. <laughs> and too much cleaning. You got to clean the machine. You got to clean this. Here. And also, you, I feel like, oh, this never... I'm a pig when it comes to pasta. And so the idea it that it only... does not make enough for it you. It doesn't make enough. <laughs> well, Sarah, that was a lot of fun and we are out of time. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Adam. <laughs>